Hello and welcome to this episode of Sounds and Sweet Airs, the podcast series for the Shakespearean Music Study Group. My name is Michelle Asai and I'm delighted to speak today to David Ward. David is the Artistic Director of the Northern Opera Group, a lead space company who specializes in the performance of operas outside of the core repertoire. David is also the host of their podcast, OperaCast, which brings audiences the latest news from the opera world each month. Outside of Northern Opera Group, David is a fundraising consultant for arts charities across the UK, including Theatre Alibi, Open Up Music and Magpie Dance. He is a board member of the Opera and Music Theatre Forum, a trustee of Leeds Youth Opera and the Fellow of the Royal Society of the Arts. Thank you for joining us, David. Not at all. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I was taken by the motto of the Northern Opera Group, which says opera might not be for everyone, but we believe that it can be for anyone. Could you tell me a bit more about the group and its ethos and philosophy? Yeah, certainly. Well, that was a quote I actually stole from a singer uh, <laughs> quite a few years ago. I can't remember who it was now, but I really like that idea. I think there's a lot of pressure on opera companies to be for everyone. Um, and I think for me, it's about opera isn't going to be for everyone. It's not for my parents. It's not for my sister. You know, it's not going to be for everyone. But through increasing opportunities to see it and get involved, it can be for anyone. Um, so I think that's really important. It's really important to me personally as well, because I got into opera through taking part. Um, I'd seen a few operas before, wasn't very keen, didn't really didn't really get it. Um, it wasn't until I actually kind of took part that I kind of got the, the, the love of opera. Um, so that idea of really opening up those opportunities to, to anyone to get involved and see if they love it is really important. Um, so as you said, with Northern Opera Group, we focus on uh, the more obscure parts of the repertoire. Um, that means we get to show audiences things they've probably never seen before. It means artists get to work on operas that they have, have never had the opportunity to do before and really put their stamp on an opera. And it also means as well that we can really dig into the repertoire to find really interesting pieces that might say something about today or that might appeal to a, a different kind of audience member. So kind of as, as part of that, we do a lot of work with communities. We have an annual community production. Anyone can take part. And so for that, we're always finding nice bits of repertoire for a wide range of audiences. A lot of families come to see the community shows. So we've done versions of Cinderella. We did Fitzner's The Christmas Elf. We did Storis' The Pirates. Um, so kind of having that focus on rare repertoire really means that we can kind of go to town and finding all sorts of weird and wonderful things that will appeal to different different audiences. That's fantastic. Yes. And I have noticed that you have an annual festival um, in Leeds, the annual opera festival. It's been in five years now or six years ongoing. Yeah, for this, this year will be the fifth year, um, amazingly. So yeah, every August bank holiday weekend, we have the Leeds Opera Festival. I suppose there are two main things about, about the festival. One is I wanted to create what I really think of as a festival. So that's a short period of time, lots of uh, productions, concerts, talks, discussions, workshops going on. People come to Leeds for a few days, taking lots of different things. Um, you know, that's something that I don't think was really existing in the opera sector. Lots of summer festivals, you know, Glyndebourne, Grange Park, whatnot, but those are, you know, long strewn out to take three months sort, sort of events. I wanted something that was really, you know, just have, have something on all, all times of day, you know, kind of come to Leeds, taking a lot of different things. And the other important part of the festival as well is it, it's called the Leeds Opera Festival because it is a festival for the whole of Leeds. It's not just one venue. 
It's not just the city centre. It's not just one type of programming. It's all sorts of different things for all parts of the community. So every festival we tour work right across Leeds, different community centres and art centres and public spaces. We have all sorts of different forms of programming. We have loads of free events. Um, we work with Made With Music to do uh, sessions for music making for, for young people and families. Mm -hmm. You know, all sorts of things. Really, going back to that motto, making sure that anyone can take part and has the opportunity to discover opera as, as part of the festival. So yeah, this year is year five. This year's festival is all about Holst. So three different Holst operas uh, and all sorts of other events and, and whatnot as well. So we're just uh, gearing up for that at the moment. It's absolutely interesting. Particularly, it looks to me to be a lot more accessible than some of those grand opera festivals you mentioned. So it's true that it feels a lot more kind of community as well as professionals. Now, the one that really interests me is, of course, your um, 2019 festival, which uh, had quite a Shakespeare-centred programme. I read the programme and the introduction about it. So could you just tell me how you designed that festival, how you came up with 2019 being centred around Shakespeare, how that happened? Yeah, so, I mean, the, it really came from the main production of that festival, which is Charles Villiers Stanford's Much Ado About Nothing. Um, it was a piece that I'd wanted to do for a long time. It's a fantastic opera. I'm sure I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about it, but just a really, really fantastic opera. And it com it completely does what we want to do as a company, bringing audiences something they won't have seen before, showing them a different side to a composer, I think is always fun. You know, people know Stanford for his, his choral works, but they don't know his operas. So it was something that I wanted to do. It's something that I wanted to kind of build a festival around. Um, in 2016, we did kind of a workshop production. We had five singers and piano, and we did a few scenes from the opera to see what it was like. You know, audiences really liked it. It came to life on stage. So the three years from 2016 to 2019 were really kind of raising the profile of the opera a bit more, raising the money for the festival, getting the rest of the, the programme around it. So once we had Much Ado in place as our main production, we wanted to find lots of opportunities to really explore Shakespeare and opera in different ways. So alongside Much Ado, we created a new production called Musical Confusion. Uh, that was the director, Elizabeth Freestone, and conductor, Helen Harrison. They took lots of different bits from lots of different Shakespeare operas and put them together with the plays themselves. So we had two opera singers and two actors doing bits of the plays and bits of the operas. That was all about how, how does the opera come from the play? How do they react together? How do they complement? How are they different? So that was a really fascinating performance. We had a, a concert of works from different Falstaff operas. So we did Salieri, Balf, Nikolai, um, with the bass Blaise Malabra and the soprano Catherine Woodruff. We had a screening of Chimes uh, at Midnight by Orson Welles, which kind of conflates all the different Falstaff stories into, into one film. So yeah, kind of using what you do is just finding lots of different strands to then explore where Shakespeare and opera can go. It was interesting because and the programme was a bit different from the, you know, the standard Shakespeare themed things that are usually, you know, Romeo and Juliet, uh, Prokofiev, which is fantastic. But, you know, I, I have been also myself, you know, championing the lesser known Shakespeare themed or Shakespeare inspired works. And they do deserve to be known, even if they are, you know, they might be just frowned upon or anything, but they do deserve to be known. The opera is, of course, the main topic I, I would like to concentrate on a little bit. So you say that you started 2016, I guess, to coincide with the quarter centenary for the, you know, the celebrations and all the festivities that were happening around Shakespeare. How did you, in the beginning, come about to think about Stanford as a composer and his opera? How did you come across that opera? Well, 
I mean, as I say, everything we do with Northern Opera Group is finding rare and wonderful repertoire. So it's often stuff that hasn't been done for many years, sometimes many hundreds of years, sometimes never been done in the UK before. So I spend a lot of time searching on IMSLP, going on, <laughs> going on just Google haunts, you know, just clicking on this and then click and just seeing, kind of seeing where it takes me. So I spend a lot of time, far too much time doing, <laughs> doing all of that. And I, I've got a huge list of works that I'd love to do someday. Much ado is from when I discovered it, probably sometime in early 2015, I, I, I sat through all afternoon and played through it on the piano and sort of sang along in, in my own special way. Um, and I, I just thought it was fantastic. It's such a characterful piece. I think it's, again, great to bring audiences a story that they know, but in a different way, as I said before, to show them a, a composer that they know but in a completely different light. So it was, just, it was clear to me from when I discovered this that this is exactly the sort of thing that, that Northern Opera Group is, is here to do. So the idea with 2016, as you said, to kind of chime with the, the Shakespeare anniversary was to kind of do this workshop production with very minimal money. It was only six months after the company had started. So, we, you know, we still weren't very well known at all just to bring it to life. You know, was it going to work on stage? Was it worth investing in, in a full production? Um, and, you know, I think we, we very clearly decided the answer was was yes. So, you know, that was a really lovely way to kind of bring this kind of repertoire to life and see whether it, it might have a, uh, a future. I imagine, I mean, what you talk about searching and surfing the net for various topics and various works, I imagine that you also quite a lot researched the background of the work and when and where it was premiered. Um, could you give a kind of a nutshell how it was? Because I imagine it wasn't very rapturously received in the, when it was premiered, the opera, for the first time, or was it um, a great success? Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't too badly received. Um, so it was Charles Williams Stanford. So it was written. Um, oh gosh, you're gonna uh, 1901, um, and it premiered at the Royal Opera House, Covent Garden, and it was fairly well received. It went on a little tour across the country. Um, didn't come to Leeds, but it went to Manchester and, and other cities as well. It then went over to Germany, but then was largely forgotten about. You know, I mean, there's this is a, definitely a topic for another day. But there's there's this sort of th way of thinking that kind of English opera kind of went from Purcell. Um, and then there wasn't anything until sort of Benjamin Britten came along. Um, there was sort of 300 years where there really wasn't, there wasn't anything at all, which is, which is complete rubbish. Um, but I think, unfortunately, Stamford just kind of fell into, into that sort of abyss before, before kind of Britain came along. So, yeah, it was, it was relatively well received, but, you know, wasn't, wasn't put again for many, many years. Um, Wexford Opera, like ourselves, who love a bit of rare repertoire, did it in the, in the, the 1960s. And then it didn't receive another full production until until we did it. And again, looking at kind of some of that original commentary and reviews, it does seem a little bit odd that it didn't have a, mm -hmm. a greater life. But again, we kind of have to remember, I suppose, the early 1900s is still quite a, a fruitful period for new operas coming out. Again, we're, we're not used to it today, but even then there was su such a churn of new work, you know, whether it by English composers or French or German or Italian or w whatever it might be. You know, it wasn't uncommon for pieces to be enjoyed for a couple of weeks and then never see the light of day again. Absolutely. Um, yeah, which again yeah. Is, is not something we're used to nowadays. There's so much investment in, in new works. There are so few major new works. You know, it, it was it was very different 100 or so years ago. Yeah, and from the point of view of practicality, is it an opera that could easily, you know, be put together in terms of the number of cast and chorus and... Uh, because that's always a factor whether we can revive an opera these days or not is the financial side of it as well. Absolutely right and I think that's 
that's why it is, it is so rare to see rare operas. Um, because opera, it does take a long time to put together. It is it is quite expensive because of the cast and the orchestra and all those all those sorts of things. Um, so often companies do just have to stick to the tried and tested repertoire. You know, it takes companies like ours to shake people up and to make it our specialism. You know, you know, we are the home for people that want to see something something different. So you know, we do get audiences from all over that, that come and see that come and see the work. I mean, there's a principal cast of about eleven, so it is quite vastly reduced from from the play. There is a chorus who are in it um, only a little bit. In our production, the principals sang all the chorus, which worked perfectly fine. The only thing we cut was a very large dance sequence, um, which I think probably would have needed a chorus. But I, d I don't think we lost anything by, by losing the, the sort of 10-minute dance that we that we took out of it. The or I mean, originally it was written for sort of full symphony orchestra. We okay. did a reduction to an orchestra of about 26 which again worked worked pretty well. And if you know there are people listening who would like to, to do much ado, you know, we'd very happy to to license our uh, reorchestration for you. So it is it is a piece that's doable, not kind of on a small scale, but on more on more of a mid scale. It's, it's definitely doable. That is fantastic. Yeah, and it's it's good to. That's the problem with some of the revivals that can they become just a one off thing. And it's good to have to share these materials, especially that you have with time and money and energy to create the material. So it would be a shame to just have it once yeah, and... Absolutely right. And again, you know, we, we really did have to go back to the, the bare bones with this. We had to get Stanford's original handwritten manuscript score from the Royal College of Music. Wow. Um, we had to get all of that typed out. Um, our conductor, Chris Pelly, then had to then make the reorchestration. So, you know, we would love for more people to do it. And again, it's something that we, given that we do a repertoire, we are really keen to try and promote the work as much as possible. So that's not only doing the production, but you know we've we've got clips and, and interviews and things on our, on our YouTube. There's lots of stuff you can see on the website. You know, I wrote a number of articles to go alongside it. So we really do try and encourage people to to engage with it. And again, hopefully, it will it will bring some some performances. Why was that you had to use the um, manuscript and not? Isn't that a Boozy and Hawks uh, publication of the school? I'll have to double check. I think what happened was I contacted them and says, please and please, can we have your special <laughs> scores and they said actually we don't have it um which is not which is not uncommon to see something on a website and ask for it and them to go actually we don't have it it doesn't exist i doubt it that might have been this the reason because i was listening to your the, to the little clip that your your conductor had put about his arrangements and i was and i thought oh why did you have to go through so much trouble if there was anything available yeah i would i would have to double check but i think if memory serves me correctly we asked and they said actually it doesn't exist sorry in a way, I think for a conductor to get that uh, close contact with a, with the score is a good thing. You know, it's basically they really get a very to go to the core of the of the music. So, okay, let's talk about the music itself. Um, is that kind of Mendelssohnian influence there because he was quite important and you know admired during the Victorian England? So, I just was wondering what what language and the style, what idiom is the opera i i think mendelssohn isn't a bad comparison for certain sections the the thing that that chris the conductor and i kept going back to actually were the wagner influences and i know that that's that again stanford was a big fan of wagner stanford always wanted to be an opera composer he always wanted to be known as a as a serious opera composer and it just kind of never really happened for him um, and again thinking of 1901 you know you've had the ring cycle that's kind of recently come and, and kind of taken london london by storm in those dark dramatic moments, the use of the brass, 
it it just kept having back to, to to Chris and I, you know, that kind of heavy kind of Wagner, Gesamtkunst work, sort you know, kind of sort sort of sort of sound world. But you know, there are lots of those lighter moments. The comedy in the pieces is, is so fantastic, and there's a real wonderful kind of uh, I don't know what you want, want to call it, sort of a parlandoy sort of style um, about that. It really does draw on all sorts of different things. Um, again, you know, we've, I say we've got some clips on YouTube and whatnot. You know, I, I would encourage people just to spend a couple of minutes listening to some of those different sections. You know, really see that Stanford does draw on all sorts of different influences for the different different parts of the opera. Do you have any particularly characteristic scenes that you can name for kind of first encounters? Well, I mean, the one that I always that I would tend to, to point people to is one of the more dramatic scenes. Actually, so there's lots of comedy in the opera. But there is such a, a beautiful moment. Um, if people know the play, it's when Claudio has rejected Hero at the altar. He's left her. She's uh, swooned. Um, and they start to, to concoct the plan that they're going to pretend that she's she's died. And there's this just tremendous quartet between Hero, the friar, her father, Leonardo, and Benedict. And it's, it's just this wonderful, romantic, soaring moment you know, maybe even kind of a, a bit of a sort of a Puccinian sort of romantic kind of splendor at that moment. Um, and just the the writing for the voice, the way that the orchestra supports the rise in that in that emotion and the and the and the singing is is just absolutely exquisite. Um, and that's one of the clips that we do have on on YouTube. You know, so for me, I think if you listen to that, you would, if you knew Stanford's music, you would not necessarily think that that was you know kind of that was that was who it was. And it's just one of those moments as well you listen to and you go, why Why has this work not been done for <laughs> 60, 70 years? You know, it's, it's so glorious. Contrasting that, there's another extract on YouTube you can hear, which is one of the bickerings between Beatrice and Benedict. Completely different musical style, but completely fantastic in a, in a, in a very different way. So, I mean, there was just so much to take from the opera. It, it, I, I, you know, and I keep going on about it, but I just think it's such a superb work. 
fantastic. No, they be- Beatrice and Benedict do it. I listen to, and it's it's very very charming. Absolutely gorgeous. Hopefully this will become something more performed, at least, you know, maybe even by colleges and the students. Com- completely. I mean, I, yeah, it's funny you should say that because it's definitely something a few of the cast members said to, to me. You know, we, we work with a mix of singers, you know, some of them are, are more established, some of them are recent kind of conservatoire graduates. And, and a few of them said, you know, this would be such a fantastic piece for colleges. It's vocally relatively challenging, but what it is really challenging is in terms of character. Um, and in terms of staging, you know, you have to have really great actors to bring this across. There's, you know, there's a lot in there for them to, to play with, you know, particularly obviously the Beatrice and, and, and Benedict. You know, we were fortunate to have a fantastic cast um, join us for our production, but it really tests out your acting muscles. And, and, you know, there are lots of scenes that you can pick out as well, whether it's Beatrice and Benedict, whether it's Hero and Claudio and their, you know, kind of, uh, I was going to say love stuff. You know their lovey-dovey um, moments. You know, there's lots of different things that you could that you could pick out for whether it's scenes or or a full production. Yeah, I was wondering uh, who's written the libretto. So it was Julian Sturgis, um, who was an American. Uh, fun facts: Julian Sturgis was the first American to play in an FA Cup final. <laughs> uh, that's, that's the fun fact for this podcast. Um, but it is it's not quite word for word the Shakespeare play, but it. If if you know the play, you will almost be able to mouth along with, with a lot of the libretto. It's very close. So he didn't use Shakespearean words. It's kind of um, new words, yeah. No, no, no. He did. He, he he does he does base it very very heavily on the Shakespeare. There are lots oh. of lots of direct quotes from the Shakespeare. You know the odd the odd little changes, but it is it is almost Shakespeare's libretto. Yeah, because that is one of the things with particularly English adaptations opera adaptations of Shakespeare that they they have to justify the decision of replacing Shakespeare words with um, with other words whereas let's say you know an Italian adaptation or Russian adaptation doesn't have that problem because they use a translation which is already an adaptation itself so that is always I find probably English composers or English speaking composers are dealing with a lot more at stake than others. Yeah, you can certainly become ham- hamstrung by it. I mean, again, I think this is a work that, that that does it very well. I mean, another work I think that does it very well is is a piece that we're doing for this year's festival, which is at the Boar's Head by Holst, which is um, based on Henry Henry IV. It's the uh, it takes place in real time Holst opera. It's where Falstaff and Prince Hal are at the Boar's Head pub, and they and they hear that um, the, the the war has begun and they have to go off to war. The libretto for that is 
apparently by William Shakespeare. So it does, you know, kind of take word for word um, mm -hmm. Shakespeare's text. But I, I completely agree, you know, when you are someone not having to write in, in English, you are much more free to do, <laughs> kind of do as you wish and, and find the words that, that, that might suit better. Yeah, how loyal compared to other Shakespearean operas, how loyal is Stanford's to Shakespeare in general? You know, not just words, but the structure, effect of it. You know, what the the effect, the effect and uh, reaction that it causes in the in the audience. How would you rate that? I would say it's very, very similar. Again, you know, not only have they used a lot of the words, but the the plot. Is, is almost exactly you can map onto the play. I think the big thing about the opera that's different is that Claudio has a much bigger role than he does in the play. I mean, I haven't counted the notes, but I would say he may even have the largest part in the opera. I was, I was struck a couple of months before we did our production, I went to go and see Much Do About Nothing by the Northern Broadsides Company um, in uh, York. Um, and I just, I completely forgot that Claudio is, he's not peripheral in the play, He's nowhere near as prominent as he is in the opera. And I think probably the reason for that is that Claudio is, he's the tenor in the opera. He's very mm -hmm. obviously going to be the leading tenor. And I think if there are some problems with the opera, Stanford occasionally gets a little bit excited by having a tenor to write for, I think. <laughs> some, of, some of Claudio's bits are lovely, but you know, they, do, they do go on a bit. That's that's probably the main thing. But you know, generally speaking, you know, if you if you knew the play really well and you saw the opera, yeah, you, you could very easily be able to, to to follow along. It's very close mapping. Did you at all look at Berlioz, Beatrice and Benedict? Yeah, I did. I did a little bit. I mean, Glyndebourne did it in twenty sixteen again for the Shakespeare celebrations, and I watched I watched their production online. But it's not something that I particularly wanted to get too bogged down in when we were putting together our much ado. Again, and I didn't want to get too bogged down in the play either. I think it's it's obviously very interesting to see how the play and the opera map onto each other. Mm -hmm. But you know, for me, if you're going to do the opera, you need to be completely invested in in how you know Stamford and Sturgis have, have created that piece. You can again sometimes get a bit bogged down in you know what does the play do originally and what kind of views in there and you know these characters and whatnot. It's useful for context, but I think you've just completely got to get into what the opera is trying to do as a piece. That's a very good point, actually, and that brings to you know the, the whole idea of the opera and Shakespeare's compatibility. You know what makes a good Shakespearean opera. You have written a, a very interest, interesting uh, little article that I read about Shakespearean operas, about you know kind of historically and um, the recent ones. So, do you have yourself an, an opinion on that? What makes a powerful Shakespearean opera? I think that's really hard to say because I'll probably say lots of contrasting things. Because I, I mean, think, it's, a, it's a difficult question. I mean, it's yeah. a question that has kept people guessing and talking about for centuries now. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, it really depends, I suppose, on the on the music and the style. You know, it's what what I'm. I was really surprised with with Much Ado, uh, Stanford's Much Ado, is that I say it doesn't deviate plot, away from the plot very much. It has a lot of characters. It has a lot of different scenes. You know, it is it is quite fast paced. When a lot of people think of opera as being quite slow, you know, you have your aria, you expand on a theme or mm. whatnot for six minutes. You know, this is a piece that does sort of roll along quite well. You know, there are other uh, Shakespeare operas, uh, you know, kind of written in a different style that that do necessarily have to get rid of some more of the plot and some more of the characters. You know, something like Beatrice and Benedict, for example. Not Beatrice and Benedict, Cap Capulets and Montagues, sorry. That does kind of necessarily have to strip away a lot of that because the musical style does require a bit more space. 
so you know sometimes the fidelity can really work very well again in the holster fidelity works fantastically i think for me it's as i said it's about understanding that you are creating something that's different and this is whether it's a, a tv adaptation a film an opera you know if you get too stuck into just trying to represent the play in a different form it's 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 not going to work you've got to make sure you know why you're doing it as an opera so you know lots of them work in in different ways to their own their own purposes but what they are all are very satisfying works in their own right you do pause in your article quite a lot on verdi of course which is uh, you can't get away from shakespeare and opera and not you know without talking about verdi which if you think about fidelity probably they are not that loyal it's just that they create they are so independent and they are such powerful works in their own rights that we don't we don't even come to think oh does it follow shakespeare or not and that's why i was thinking maybe the translation is a help for that because i I don't know, um, you probably did go to Brett Dean's Hamlet or at least watch the production, but one of the reactions to his, um, the negative reactions was more to do with the libretto and saying, you know, you don't mess with to be or not to be. <laughs> I mean, that, that, is, that is a really interesting point. And I think there is something there about, you know, the English and our, our love for Shakespeare, our fidelity to, to, to Shakespeare. You know, it was really interesting when, Italian opera first came over to England. There was so much talk about how this isn't appropriate for England. You know, we are the country of, of, of Shakespeare and Marlowe and Johnson. You know, we are about fantastic words and opera is frivolous, frivolous, silly music. You know, I think, you know, potentially that was one of the reasons why foreign composers could embrace Shakespeare a lot more than, than we could do. As you know, as you said earlier, they don't have to be fidelitous to the text because they're writing a different language anyway. There isn't that national identity uh, around Shakespeare that there is that there is in other countries so it does put quite a big onus on composers when they're when they're putting something so famous to to, to text you know and I was thinking this morning as well slightly off topic I do apologize but you know why do we not have fantastic Dickens operas you know that's yeah. the type of composer you'd think uh, the type of writer and stories that would just be so fantastic operatically great characters amazing stories great ensembles you know why do we why do we not have those you know is it because people are just concerned that if you deviate away from from those stories that we all know so well that there'll be an uproar i think it's a really interesting interesting question what does william shakespeare being english mean for english writers trying to bring him to the stage as compared to to non-english composers and writers no absolutely yeah a dickensian opera <laughs> yeah it kind of very clear choice as as an operatic theme you're absolutely right I think there is this national treasure that was very national identity is a very important thing. Though you know, in the in the Romantic time, Germans and Russians and French thought Shakespeare is as much theirs as his English. So, uh, but it's just that the distortion would fit their own national identity. Well, my own work is more on the Russian and the Soviets, and it's interesting to compare because there are some Russian opera adaptations, particularly of Hamlet. And they're not so much bothered by by the you know by the words because in any case they are using translations. But it's so much more with the psychological effect of it. So you know to see the world through the eyes of Hamlet, basically, you know something like that. So which is very interesting. Well, we've been kind of mentioning but not getting into Holst, especially that is coming up in your next uh, festival. So it's good to have a little chat about that as well. Uh, so you are including Holst opera or is it just excerpts or how is it? 
Yeah, so so this year's festival we've got three um, whole whole stoppers, and again, like Stanford, he's he's a great composer to bring to people because people know the planets. Oh yeah, you know, they they know his orchestral music, but again, they they don't really know the the opera. So like Stanford, he's a really great one to bring to the uh, to the stage. But Hulse particularly for me for me is fascinating because he only wrote four operas. We're doing three of them, and they're all just so different. So if you're putting together a festival program. You, you don't want to do this every year, but actually just to pick one composer and show all the amazing things opera can be just by one person's work is quite an exciting prospect. So we've got uh, The Wandering Scholar, which is a 20-minute opera for singers, a rather bawdy comedy. And then we've got a double bill of Savitri, which is based on an old um, Indian epic tale. It's a really grand, really emotional, very psychologically intense piece. Um, and then we're pairing that with at the Boar's Head, which again is completely different. It's a comedy that is uh, kind of a, you know adapted from Henry the Four, uh, Henry Four Part One and Part Two by Holst, uh, with Falstaff and, and Hal at the Boar's Head Tavern. Um, again, a comedy, but it has those darker moments. And whilst again musically speaking, Holst for Savitri, inspired by Wagner, I think there's a lot of Pelis and Melisande in Savitri. When you get to at the Boar's Head, it's all traditional English tunes Mm -hmm. basically you know again we've got this period with holst with vaughan williams this obsession with old traditional english music you know what is traditional english music what are traditional folk melodies and all those sorts of things you know they all get put into at the boar's head so you know that just that contrast in in themes in stories in musical styles it's fascinating to see with with these three works are you going about the staging of at the boar's head It'll be, well, it's being directed by uh, Emma Black, who we've worked with a couple of times and, and conducted by uh, Louis Gaston. So it'll be relatively traditional staging. Um, we haven't announced the cast yet, but I can promise you that we've put together a, a rather fantastic cast to, to bring this, uh, this piece to life. Yeah, and I say it'll just be a fascinating contrast to kind of have with the, the savagery as well, in which it's being presented in a, in a double bill. If you if you want to see what opera is all about, you just need to come and see Savitrine at the Boar's Head, and you'll have a pretty good, pretty good <laughs> idea of, of what it can do. Yeah, the contrast and the the range of emotions. Absolutely, you know? yeah. You had written about the character of Ostov again in a separate article, I saw, and I, it was interesting. You know, this one of the most irresistible characters to opera composers, as you say. How is he in uh, host at the Boar's Head? How is he depicted? Uh, you know, is he multifaceted or not? I, I think he is much more multifaceted. I mean, it's by doing this piece set in the Boar's Head Tavern, you you see him at his at various at his most relaxed and commanding, and at his weakest points. This is the opera that contains the fantastic moment when they they're play acting King and and the Prince. You know, that moment when kind of Prince Hal turns on on Falstaff when the, the news of the, the war is announced and he's kind of have, having to kind of take on the mantle of sort of being the the prince and having to kind of lead lead, lead the men. So you do see a, a much more kind of multifaceted portrayal of, of, of Falstaff. And I think it is by being able to see in much greater detail that relationship he has with Hal. You know, a lot of the Falstaff operas are Mary Rise of Windsor um, rather than the, the Henry plays. Yeah. Uh, which are great because Falstaff is a hilarious character larger than life gets into all sorts of stupid situations in Mario as a Windsor you can you can you can laugh at him but if you want to properly from my point of view you want to properly get to the grips of that character 
you you need to see him with Hal. You know, you need to see what that relationship means. Um, and that's what you get in this, that you don't get in the Nikolai or the Verdi or, you know, what, mm-hmm. whatever else it, it, it might be. So, you know, if you're familiar with those pieces, you know, I think really interesting to see him in, in this kind of scenario. That's an absolutely amazing point you make. Yeah, and the, the whole idea of history plays almost never being set to opera, whereas comedies and tragedies are. I guess it's, again, with the connection with the Englishness that, you know, a foreigner... Um, or a foreign composer wouldn't necessarily connect to the history of England. I don't know if that is the case or not, because the his- Shakespeare's histories are much more about history, just more about you know the general human condition. So that's that's interesting. Yeah, I, I really don't know you know why that is. I mean, you know, again, apart from Donizetti, who did his um, his Tudor trilogy, you know, English monarchs have not weren't particularly of interest to composers. <laughs> You know, you know, going particularly in the in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries, when opera is is dominated by the Italians, Germans, the French, you know, they, they just they just weren't they just weren't particularly interested. So that you know naturally goes into to Shakespeare's history plays, which all are about uh, English monarchs. But you know, again, I do I do I do wonder why. And I think the article you referred to, I think I mentioned that you know, wouldn't Henry V be a fantastic opera? Wouldn't Richard III be? you know, a tremendous opera. And as you said, psychologically as well, Richard III, yes, it's a history, but my word, if, if you want to do a piece that's getting into someone's psyche, Richard III surely is the, the meaty one that you want to you want to tackle. So I, I just think it's fascinating that, you know, there have been adaptations, but, you know, when we talk about some of the other Shakespeare's that, that are the bread and butter of opera companies that they've just never, they've never been able to kind of punch through. I don't entirely know why that is. As you said, there have been plenty of other operas written about kings and queens from 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 other countries but for whatever reason english monarchs the shakespeare history plays just never sparked people's imaginations the way that you know the tragedies and, and, and comedies did which i think is a, a crying shame yeah and at the ball said it's not a stranger to opera houses they do it, it does get performed time from time to time doesn't it is the group, is the Northern Opera Group bringing something new? Is uh, Or is it is placing around other works of Holst that makes this particular kind of a unique opportunity to encounter this opera? Yeah, as I said earlier, I think it's the opportunity to see these different pieces all together. You know, with, with this festival, you can go to our venue in the evening and see Wandering Scholar and then see Savitri and then see other boar's heads. You know, it's great. They're all quite short works, which means that you can take them all in in an evening and it not stretch on all day so to kind of see them in that context is i think is is really really interesting and it, it's kind of complete fluke in a way that we're doing at, at the boar's heads you know i mean i i really enjoyed what you do i'm shakespeare and opera is, is interesting but we're not we're not doing it because it's a, a shakespeare opera it just mm-hmm. so happened that it's what it's what appealed to 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 holst so yeah you know that opportunity to see them all together and as i say you know i think especially this year when we're re-engaging people with live performance we're kind of getting people back into theatres, getting people to see things, you know, to be able to have a festival with with such variety, trying to find different ways to get all sorts of different people engaged and to, to give them little bits of, of everything. You know, I think Holst has been a great composer to be able to do that with. Absolutely. That Was that the reason you chose? Did you come up with the idea of having Holst as the central composer of this festival? or? Well, no, not really, because this was the programme we were supposed to present last year. So originally, this program would have been presented in 2020 with 
everything that happened that that wasn't possible i mean we, we still had a festival last year um and it was actually our biggest festival to date we had 19 events across five days we had seven live performances um including the first indoor concert in the north of england post lockdown so we had a lot of stuff going on but there was no way that we could do full orchestras and, and all and all that sort of stuff so rather than cancel the whole program you know we really really wanted to do it so we postponed it to this year and and all of the fingers crossed it looks as though it's, it's going to be able to, <laughs> to to go ahead hopefully with very minimal restrictions in, in oh god in yeah place. so it, it's great to be able to still bring it bring it to life that's that's always what we wanted to do. i think everyone is starved <laughs> to, to have some kind of live event and everything happening in front of them and yeah as you say hopefully with less restriction uh, the co-host of our podcast, Michael Graham, he he will not forgive me if I don't speak a little bit more. I stay on false stuff and at the boar's head because that is his obsession. So okay, I have to come right. back a little bit. Um, otherwise, he'll tell me off. Uh, what about the English tunes? And can you just go on and tell us a little bit more about just in general the, um, at the boar's head, how it strikes you as um as an opera that stands apart from others, you told me about the connection that it deals with uh, Henry IV rather than with Mary Wallace of Windsor, which is a very, very fascinating idea. Are there any other aspects that makes it a very unique opera within other English operas and within other, you know, the international operas, whether or not Shakespeare-based? Potentially the most interesting thing about this opera, although I think I've already listed about 10 interesting things, the most interesting thing <laughs> is that it, it, it observes that unity of time and place. So the whole thing, the whole hour of the opera is technically speaking an, an hour in real life. Now, obviously opera time is slightly different than real time, but you know, it, it all takes place in one location, you know, over the course of, of an opera hour as, as, as such. Um, and again, I, I'm probably, I'll probably think of 10 once we get off this call, but I can't think of any <laughs> other operas that, 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 that do that. Again, one of the things that people think about opera is that it is, it's big and it's lavish and you have these massive arias and all these different scenes and whatnot. And here's an opera that goes, actually, we're just going to present this story. It's an hour. We're going to take an hour. Characters will come in and out. Things will happen. But that's just what we're going to present you with. You know, and I think that really matches the, the musical style that the Holst goes for as well. You know, I'm, I'm not a musicologist, so I can't speak too much on this idea of kind of collecting old English tunes and, and that I say that kind of obsession that, that that people seem to have in the early 1900s to kind of collect the, the musical heritage of, of England um but it is it does give it a certain I don't want to say simplicity because I, I think that under undervalues it but it gives it a certain charm shall we say it gives it gives a certain sort of ambiance that I just think fits really nicely with this idea of keeping things simple one setting play the story through see this relationship between Hal and Falstaff play out and I think it's surprisingly sort of intense because of it as well. We're not mm. chopping and changing around. We're not trying to do anything too fancy. You really do just own in on those characters and the situation. Um, so it's a, this really interesting bringing together of that unity of time and setting and, and the way he's chosen the the music. Um, it, it's a, it's a piece I've completely fallen for since we first looked at it a couple of a couple of years ago. Interesting. With opera, the first thing that comes to mind is contrast and drama and kind of, you know, as you say, big span of time and characters and <laughs> revenge and murder. Uh, how would you sustain the attention without those? And as you say, in the kind of real time, what is the secret there? That's a very interesting question. Again, uh, I mean, I'm not directing this piece. I've, I, what I try to do, if I'm not directing something, 
is I try not to think about how I would direct it because I think that's <laughs> in where problems lie. And I'm touch wood, I think I'm quite good at, at not making directors feel as though I've sort of directed it in my head. But as I said before, I think what, what is interesting about this is that you do therefore focus really closely into this relationship between Hallen and, and Falstaff, which is, you know, in the plays is such an amazing relationship, how that relationship turns, how Falstaff has that hold on Hal, and then gradually as Hal begins to realise what it is he needs to become, you know, eventually becoming Henry V, how that turns on its head, how Falstaff is left behind as, as Hal grows up. And this is a piece where you see that turning. You know, so it is, it might not be something that has, you know, the biggest set pieces, although it certainly does have those, um, those moments and the biggest sort of musical swells. It's, you know, it's, it's not a gigantic orchestration, but the way that those characters work and, and interact and move through that hour, it just com- it completely draws you in. It completely yeah, draws you the in. character study and it's close character study that is amazing about it, I find. Being able to get to the depth of and music, of course, is being a way kind of opening the path and doors to allow allow us view what is happening inside. It sounds absolutely amazing. So, um, and that's going to be in the the festival as the usual time in this bank holiday of August. Yeah, Friday the twenty seventh and Saturday the twenty eighth at Morley Town Hall. We've got. I say this whole evening of Holst. So at the Boar's Head and Savatry is a ticketed double bill. But just before that, you can come along uh, for free and see The Wandering Scholar as well. The Wandering Scholar will then go on tour to about 10 <laughs> different venues all, all, all across Leeds. So we sort of pack pack The Wandering Scholar on on his merry way and and, and, and send him off. Um, and then this double bill will be on the Friday and, and Saturday evening. But, you know, if people uh, are travelling up for the festival, you know, there's lots of different stuff going on. We'll have a live recording of our OperaCast podcast. We've got a singing workshop. We've got uh, an exhibition about the history of opera in Leeds. This was postponed from last year, but we've been researching the 300-year history of, of opera uh, in Leeds. We've got an online exhibition, and that's going to be brought to brought to life as, as part of the festival as well. So, you know, there is all sorts of stuff going on around around this this double bill. So, you know, come for the Holst and, and, and stay for all the other, the other stuff that we've got going on. Do you ever pull forces with Opera North? Not particularly. What's what's interesting is that you know obviously we're both based in in Leeds, so you know we have the same sort of geographical setting and, and boundaries and whatnot. But you know we do things in a very different way and we do very different things, which is why you know I think we work very well together. You know obviously we focus on uh, the more obscure parts of the repertoire, whereas their main job is to bring big traditional operas to to audiences in the north of England. You know they have a really wide outreach program, but. What we do that, that they don't and, and hardly anyone else does is, is enable amateur people to take part in, in fully staged operas. So I think we kind of complement each other in many ways. And, you know, and again, people might think that, you know, how can Leeds have two opera companies? But, you know, Le- Le- Leeds and, as you know, the, Leeds in the wider north of England, there's many tens of millions of people who, who live here. And I think it could do with at least two opera companies, if not, if not probably quite a, quite a lot more. I'm sure we could sustain it. And beyond Hulst, um, do you have any any mildly Shakespeare themed or related projects at all in mind or are you look will you be looking at anything because I have suggestions <laughs> oh, well, yeah I, I, I love having suggestions yeah absolutely I mean in terms of in terms of the Shakespeare stuff I think we've got to be careful that we don't do too much because we had the Shakespeare festival and now I've got other boils head so I'm, I'm mindful of not getting too bogged bogged down in it but certainly Bender's Romeo and Juliet I I really like and um, that is something at some point I would I would be very keen 
to do, uh, certainly. I mean, in general, we have repertoire planned for the next couple of festivals, which haven't been announced yet, but some, I would say this, but some really, really fantastic things coming up. Going forward into December, we'll be getting hopefully our community back on stage again, which would be fantastic. Last December, we did our first film. We did a film version of Vido Cinderella. We're going to be making some some more films, putting out some more new commissions as well. So there's loads of stuff that will be going on, and I'm looking forward to announcing them all in, uh, in due course. Wow, this all sounds absolutely amazing. And I think you're doing a great job by bringing these repert- this repertoire that, you know, and the works that are less taken into account. It's always about finding the financial and the support and people who actually care and are committed and will do it at whatever happens. So it's, and it's absolutely great that we have someone like you. Well, thank you so much for this, David. Uh, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. The hour went by, kind of, I didn't even notice. So I hope we can talk to you again, maybe at some point and hear more about the uh, future projects and future programs. Outside of this, I'll give you loads of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please, please do. I love, I love having um, ideas and, ad- and adding, adding them to the list. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's been lovely. Thanks for, for having me. I'm always, always happy to talk opera. That is, uh, that's never been a problem for me. So, uh, yeah, no, thank you very much, David. Thank you. Thank you.